Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And I'm recording this on April 1st of 2023, April Fool's Day. But this episode is actually going to be the third part in our series on Auto Score Zinni. I'm not playing a prank on you. Um, Unless the prank is that you are, this ends up being a bad episode and I'm selling it to you as if it's going to be a good one. But hopefully that's not the case. If you haven't checked it out yet, I just went on Program to Chill, talked with Jimmy Fallon Gong. We talked about rap snitches. So go check out the Program to Chill podcast. I think that all of you guys will appreciate that. It was certainly a lot of fun talking with Jimmy when we did that. And if you have listened to that, or perhaps you're a newcomer to the show and you're checking it out because of that, this is the third part in the Autoscore Zinni series. I mean, you can probably get something out of it, even though it is the third part, but you might want to check out the other parts. And we also got a lot of other good shows that we have done on Things Observed. We are just coming, sorry if you hear my papers shuffling. But we just came off a three-week series of different interviews, you know, just started getting into doing interviews on the podcast as of recent. We talked to Recluse, we talked to William Ramsey, and we talked to Johnny Vedmore. So, you know, we covered Perfumo with Vedmore, we covered the World Anti-Communist League with Recluse, and we covered the West Memphis Three with William Ramsey. So that was all very fun, but today... We're going back, kicking it old school, and I am doing a solo cast. And as I said, the third part on our Auto Scorzini series. So, what are some of the things that we have talked about in the Auto Scorzini so Scorzini series so far? Well, we talked about Otto Scorzini and his Nazi years. We talked about how he ended up becoming Hitler's top commando in his own words. And, you know, we talked about him saving Mussolini, you know, all that kind of, the, the Nazi years was the first episode. And then in the second episode, we talked about how he got hooked up to Compass Rose, which was kind of this proto-Gladio type operation where Western intelligence was setting up these stay-behind networks over in France and how they were using Nazis and French fascist and reactionary forces in order to oppose communism. And we talked a little bit about Scorzini busting out of prison. Um, you know, he was being held there, not for war crimes, but, you know, you know, that's kind of a semantic difference. But how he would eventually get out the pin and whether or not he busted out is kind of the common, you know, narrative, the one that he relays, or whether he was let out. We talked about how he would be interviewed by people like Arnold Silver, people like William Donovan, the OSS cowboy, Wild Bill Donovan. We talked about some of his connections to the World Commerce Corporation and the British American Commerce Corporation and all of the funny business that was going on there. We talked a little bit, I believe, about Frank Wisner and the Office of Policy Coordination and some of Scorzini's, you know, contacts inside of that and whether or not he was doing stuff like that. So, you know, we've kind of covered Scorzini through the Nazi years up until he started working with Western intelligence after he was let out of being, you know, detained. And anyways... Now we are going to just jump right back where we left off, and it is going to be Scorzini arriving in Paris, you know. So we've already recapped some of the events, and so let's just go ahead and, you know, get right back into it. And so, you know, we already talked a little bit about Scorzini's French connections, you know, with Compass Rose and the Stay Behind Network that was going on there. And so... You know, anyhow, there's a real brief summary of everything. So now let's just go ahead and pick up where we left off. Oh, but I did forget to mention that, you know, we ended last episode. I was saying that Scorzini uh, had some connections to the Gellin organization, some communication with them. And so I guess I'll just go ahead and just, you know, truly pick up where I left off and mention that. 
but many of you have heard of the Gellin organization, but for those of you who have not heard of it, its namesake was Reinhard Gellin, who was this Nazi intelligence chief during the war. Gellin had a large knowledge of things that was going on on the Soviet front due to him being the chief of the foreign armies east for the Nazis. Yes, Gellin was a Nazi. And this was obviously of great interest to Western intelligence because basically all the you know Cold War paranoia was starting to set in in the post-war environment. And we are leading into the Cold War years now. And a lot of these Cold War paranoiacs were convinced that there was, you know, an imminent Soviet invasion of Europe and the rest of the world and that the red tide was going to sweep everywhere. This is something that Skorzeny believed. This is, you know, one of the reasons that made him of value. So anyways, they obviously found Gellin to be an asset in this sense. And so, you know, Gellin has this large knowledge. And so, you know, this, this makes him the man to go to. And, you know, Elsa... Uh, Scorzini, who would, you know, end up becoming Scorzini's lady, and, you know, we talked a little bit about her in previous episodes, she would attest to the fact that, you know, Scorzini worked with Gellin. And so, after being hit fired from his position amongst the Nazis, Gellin would photograph the documents in his divisions, and he would make the American cult warriors an offer that they could not refuse. And so then the Gellin group would be set up at Camp King, which, if you've been listening to the Scorzini series, you'll be familiar with Camp King because Scorzini would arrive at Camp King during the period of time that the Gellin group was still there and operating. So it's especially interesting when one takes into this uh, takes this into account that Scorzini and Gellin would have been familiar to one another, having worked with one another during the war, and they were both at Camp King at the same time. And then they would both end up becoming Western Intelligence Agency assets. Hmm, I wonder if anything's going on there. But Gannis says that, you know, in Ralph Gannis, he is the author of the Scorzini Papers, which it's named after the papers that he would acquire at auction, which was all of Scorzini's private papers and stuff. And, you know, we've been using that as the primary source in this episode, uh, episodes, you know, series of episodes. Man, as usual, I can't talk. And look at me, I decided to get into podcasting. But anyway, so Gannis says that it would make perfect sense for the Gellin group to have facilitated Scorzini's escape since this could have been done without direct American involvement. You know, kind of a typical case of plausible deniability. The American intelligence agencies want something done, so what do they do? They contract it out to some sort of private entity or foreign entity, so it's not directly traced back to them. That's kind of what was going on with the World Commerce Corporation and the BACC, which, you know, we already mentioned in the recap and we have already talked about in previous episodes, although it will come up again. So Gellin's group would be moved to Bavaria. And it's also interesting that Scorzini's safe house where he would meet Elza would be in Bavaria. So Elza would say to author Martin A. Lee that the Gellin organization would supply weapons to Scorzini at the safe house. And so, you know, none of this should be surprising when it comes to the Gallon organization, given that they would work alongside the CIA and helping swaths of Nazis into the U.S. through paperclip. And it should also be noted that according to the authors Glenn Yeadon and John Hawkins in The Nazi Hydra in America, another one of the sources for this series of episodes, that Alan Dulles was actually the principal backer of the Gellin organization. And, you know, Dulles was by no means a stranger to Nazis. Both the Dulles brothers, uh, you know, Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles, through the law firm Sullivan and Cromwell, would represent a host of German companies that profited off the Third Reich. And Dulles would always also make sure that American investments in Germany weren't seized after the war concluded. You know, and so many of Dulles' actions were only a stone's throw away from Scorzini, actually. 
Um, I'll just go ahead and read a brief quote from Coup in Dallas by H.P. Alberelli Jr., which I highly recommend and which will become much more relevant once we finally get into all the JFK stuff involving Scorzini. I know I keep teasing that. I'm sorry. But anyways, Alberelli Jr. writes, In Switzerland, where Alan Dulles was serving under OSS Chief Bill Donovan, the German SS was somehow able to buy up a large amount of stock in American corporations and laundered the money through Rockefeller's Chase Bank. Senior staff at Chase Bank included John J. McCloy. Soon after the war, arms dealer Victor Oswald, who became a close associate of Otto Skorzeny throughout the Cold War, would be appointed the Chase Bank representative in Madrid. Okay, so anyhow, a month after Skorzeny's escape, Carl Radel, another dude who we mentioned in previous episodes, would also escape along with Skorzeny. So, you know, Skorzeny's Nazi bud locked up, never going to get locked up again. And this is also taken as evidence by Gannis that this was also part of the Skorzeny operation, you know, since they... Both are staying, you know, in the same place, and they would both escape along the same time. And Radel, much like Scorzini, would also end up doing work for French intelligence, you know, in order to fight those evil pinko commie bastards. So speaking of the French, let's just wrap up a couple things before we go on to discuss Scorzini's move to France. So one of the things that shortly after Skorzeny was released from detention, he would have a meeting with a shadowy figure known to him only as Mr. Martin, and he claimed to be from the State Department. You know, this is all according to Skorzeny's testimony, at least. Um, but Skorzeny uh, doubted this. And in the Skorzeny's papers, it says that he narrowed down the identification of this man to David Martin, who was the director of the International Relief Organization, the IRO, and he was also serving as a, which was, sorry, the International Relief Organization was serving as a cover for the covert activities of Frank Wisner's Office of Policy Coordination, the Covert Operations Division of the CIA, the Dirty Tricks Division, if you will, and the topic of conversation with Skorzeny was the sabotage of the Soviet bloc, which, you know, Skorzeny would be a fitting candidate for the job, given his activities as a commando during the war, where he was very familiar with sabotage and subversion and all of those sort of things. So, once again, Skorzeny kind of meets the job qualifications, and from all appearances, it seems as if he would land the position. And so Gannis writes, another area of discussion at the meeting was the contingencies for a Soviet invasion of Germany, specifically how to deny the Soviets from capturing vital German industries and how to evacuate scientists, engineers, and technical personnel. The fact that the evacuation of key personnel was a talking point of the discussions is critical. In fact, the Scorzini papers contain correlating documents written after the Martin meeting, specifically referring to plans Scorzini termed as rescue actions. Basically, these were specially trained commando units that Scorzini had assembled from his wartime command and other contacts that could be sent into denied areas to extract key personnel or rescue them if the Soviets had already seized them. The rescue capability developed by Scorsini matches Office of Policy Coordination missions precisely. So anyways, you know, we have this Mr. Martin who is most likely this guy who's involved with the Office of Policy Coordinations. And Scorsini fits the job description for what it is that they were looking to do. And it seems, as you know, we will cover later on, that Scorsini would do exactly this. So Skorzeny would also meet with another guy, Boris T. Pash, and Pash was a former army colonel that began work with Wisner's OPC and was assigned to the PB-7 unit in the OPC, which was concerned with espionage, counter-espionage, and deception for military operations. Once again, all things that fit Skorzeny's skill set to a T. 
So during the Senate Select Committee on Government Intelligence in 1967, yeah, you know, this was when the infamous Watergate plumber who would have a hand in many things, such as the Guatemalan coup, the Bay of Pigs invasion, possibly even the assassination of JFK, yes, we're talking about Howard Hunt, would tell the committee that PB7 was responsible for assassinations when he said the CIA had a small unit set up to arrange for the assassination of suspected double agents and similar ranking officials. You know, so that's what the infamous Howard Hunt would say about this PB7 unit, which, man, Howard Hunt, what an interesting guy. I, uh, Remember when I went to a JFK assassination conference that I would see his son, Saint, uh, I think he was named after Saint John, like John Hunt or something like that. Anyhow, I'd see his son sit, you know, talk about his dad's supposed death bed confession as to, uh, you know, not getting into specifics, but having something to do with the assassination of JFK. So, Anyways, uh, that's interesting. I have no reason not to take him at his word, but who knows? You can't always trust everybody in these circles. But anyhow, so, you know, back to Pash, who would work with this PB7 unit, which was involved with assassinations, if we're to believe Howard Hunt, when he's, you know, testifying before these, this congressional committee. Um, you know, it was also during this time that Pash's involvement with PB7 was first revealed and why Pash would deny that PB7 was conducting assassinations, but he would say that PB7 was involved in planning or exploring assassination options. Once again, we're going to come back to this whole kind of plausible deniability thing, you know, um, contracting stuff to outside, you know, private entities or foreign entities, so you don't have the blood directly on your hands but i mean really you do so anyhow it is most certainly plausible that pb7 technically didn't conduct any assassinations themselves but rather outsourced these kinds of operations to men like who else but otto scorzini and we would know that you know later on in life much after long after his commando years scorzini would have assassination missions outsourced to him and, you know, this would serve a useful function if you were to, you know, say, end up in front of a committee later on in life uh, that was asking if your unit was carrying out killings because if you're like Pash, you could, in fact, say that you weren't. And a story that he would tell the committee may have even involved a meeting with Otto and Elza, although this is speculation, but I'll go ahead and recount a little bit about this meaning that Pash would describe that took place right after he took the job in the PB7 unit, which was in 1949, which just so happens to sound similar to the meeting that Scorzini described as having took place with Mr. Martin. Yes, so this discussion was about potential Soviet invasion of the West, how to deny communist key industries, how to thwart the Soviet bloc, and something brought up during the meeting was how to prevent the capture of difficult-to-replace, highly technical individuals whose skills had to be developed in years, you know? Uh, what are we going to do with all these super-talented, awesome Nazis? Well, during this meeting, a woman would speak up at this point and... Um, Oh, sorry, that's not talking about the Nazis. I'm I'm losing focus, everybody. Um, April Fool's um, and talking about, you know, what to do with these, uh, uh, you know, Soviets. And a woman would speak up to the point and say, why don't we murder them? And according to Pash, this would catch everyone off guard. And who knows if that is true, if it actually caught them off guard, you know, I... I and it could beg belief a little bit, but while we don't know, we can only wonder if it was maybe Ilsa Skorzeny who said this, given the fact that she would be heavily involved with Otto's covert operations. So, anyways, much more could be said of Skorzeny's very probable involvement with the Office of Policy Coordination, but in the interest of time, let's finally get to Skorzeny's arrival in Paris, the Parisian years. 
So after a short trip of unknown reason to every Nazi's favorite subtropical hangout, Argentina, which you guys could probably guess, and you know when he went there, he was offered passage through Spain, which was the World Commerce Corporation's uh, headquarters, you know where they were operating out of, and you know a brief stint of time after this Argentina trip that is unaccounted for, Scorzini would begin the Parisian chapter of life um you know perhaps he was outside on um, you know sitting at cafes smoking cigarettes drinking his coffee black reading existentialist tomes and looking into the the cobblestone streets that are uh, who knows anyways but in 1948 a dude by the name of pierre berteau the director of the French National Police, and Roger Weibo, the head of the Directorate of Territorial Surveillance, would meet with Ilza and Scorzini to offer them asylum in France in order to help do what else than fight those pesky pinkos from taking over Europe. So both Pierre and Roger were part of, you know, the Compass Rose missions uh, operation you know, which we have discussed in the previous episode um, in relation to Scorzini. And Pierre Berteau would actually be a friend of James J. Angleton, you know. You all know him, we all hate him, the famous CIA counterintelligence chief. And considering Angleton at the time was in charge of foreign liaisons, he would also have been in contact with Pierre in relation to Scorzini and his work for the Compass Rose operations. So we're already starting to see a, you know, possible a two degrees of, or is it a degree of Kevin Bacon away between Scorzini and James J. Angleton. So Scorzini would stay with Pierre for a period of time before he would receive his next safe house to stay in during his time in France. And the private group, the American Committee on United Europe, or the ACUE, was formed two months prior to the arrival of Scorzini in Paris. And it would give a vehicle for the, you know, Nazi commando to operate through. So, you know, we see Scorzini get this safe house, and we see him get set up with this American Committee on United Europe. And so Donovan and Dulles were actually the minds behind the ACUE, and its purpose was to promote European federalism in order to thwart communism. And in fact, the group's first chairman would be none other than Donovan, with Dulles as its vice chair, and there would also be people on the board like Walter Bettel Smith and the Armco Steel Corporation chairman Charles Hook. And so it's unsurprising, you know, to people who listen to this show and who hang out in these weird parapolitical circles to learn that the ACUE was receiving funding from both the Ford and the Rockefeller Foundation. Even Winston Churchill would be involved in the formation of the ACUE, actually. Um, And there was also a Colonel Solberg, who I believe we previously mentioned, but he was also involved with ACUE after his time as a deputy to Donovan, just as he was with the World Commerce Corporation. And he he would be a longtime associate of Scorzini, specifically in relation to Armco Steel-related matters. So ACUE will almost undoubtedly return to the conversation in our discussion of the life of Scorzini, And, you know, so anyway, Scorzini has these connections to some of these ACUE guys. But in the interest of, you know, just keep on moving along, chugging along, um, you know, because there's just so much to cover when it comes to Scorzini. And I know that all of you who've made it this far through the series, which I commend you if you have made it this far into the series, we're all itching to get to the JFK stuff, and it just seems like I'm a liar at this point, but we will get to it. But anywho, um, you know, so on to the next thing. Let's turn our attention to a military assistance program um, that was at the time of the recently created NATO, which included things as covert arms programs and this this 
what would you say? I get this military assistance program would be initially led by James Forrestal, the U.S. Defense Secretary, who would task General Lyman Lemnitzer with the American assistance of NATO. And some of you guys probably know who Lemnitzer is. Um, he was the man who strongly advocated that Kennedy invade Cuba during the Bay of Pigs, uh, you know, what would eventually be a fiasco. And as well as presenting, he would present JFK with a plan to surprise nuke the Soviet Union. And Lemnitzer, in my mind, is one of these guys who's just like the embodiment of Cold War paranoia. He's kind of like the general in Doctor Strangelove a little bit, you know. You could, I could see him behind a desk, you know, uh, when the shit hits the fan, talking about how precious his fluids are and all that weird kooky stuff that happens in Doctor Strangelove. But among this, you know, the assistants uh, that were that was being given to this stay behind program which we have already discussed in both this and the previous episode on Scorzini incorporated into this was nuclear war contingency plannings and as all of you can probably guess Scorzini but it would become involved in these NATO military assistance programs and so CIA director Walter Bettel Smith would host um, Pierre Berteau and Roger Weibo in Washington and Gannis would contend that the topic of conversation was most likely involving peace and liberty, which is the next group that we're talking about. Because, yes, I'm not talking about um, how to bring peace and liberty to Europe or these ideological concepts of peace and liberty, but rather peace and liberty was rather a program that took place during the time of Compass Rose and was deeply involved with not only French intelligence, but you all guessed it, the CIA. So, Peace and Liberty was an anti-communist psychological war ca- warfare campaign, and the previously mentioned Danielle Ganser, um, who wrote the book NATO's Secret Armies, which we referenced in the last episode, he would describe Peace and Liberty as a large CIA front organization. And so, this conversation between Smith and the French boys would likely involve Otto and Ilza, who were known to be anti-communist crusaders, deeply involved with Western intelligence. And they were at this time working with Pierre and Roger in the inception of the American... Um, they were working at this time with Pierre and Roger in the previously you know, mentioned you know, CIA-connected Compass Rose operations. So, it, you know... It would make sense for them to be brought into the loop of this psychological warfare campaign. And so shortly after this meeting, uh, there would be the inception of the American Friends of Peace and Liberty. And if there's ever a group that starts with the American Friends of something or the other, you can almost bet your bottom dollar that it's some sort of weird CIA cutout bullshit. But anyways... Um, this group would be operated by Clifford Forrester, and Forrester was a Yale graduate, and he would work with the actually the ACLU, and he is you know not definitively but probably an intelligence operate, uh, operative at this point in time. So with Forrester, Gannis highlights something interesting, some interesting connections, which I find worth reading. So anyhow, we will refer once again to Gannis. Additionally, we find that Clifford Forster had a pre-existing connection to Scorzini. Forster's family was from Austria and lived in the same neighborhood as the Scorzinis in Vienna. It is likely that Forster's work with French intelligence and his family acquaintance with Scorzini was why he was selected as a secret contact to Scorzini. Although there is no direct record of Clifford Forster being in the CIA, there is ample evidence he was involved in numerous intelligence front groups linked to the agency. And this was at the time he was also in direct contact with Scorzini. There are other curious connections to Clifford Forster that should be highlighted. First, directly after the war, Forster was the lead staff officer for the head of the ACLU under Roger Nash Baldwin. 
Baldwin had hired a former U.S. Navy intelligence officer named Ben Bradley as a clerk in his office, and Bradley later became a famous journalist and was connected to the famous challenge to the federal government over the right to publish the Pentagon Paper documents detailing the history of the United States' deep role in Indochina. Bradley only worked for the ACLU a few months before the short period worked side-by-side with Clifford Forster, who ran the office. This connection opens an amazing web of intrigue and historical speculation. For example, Bradley was a childhood friend of Richard Helms, a veteran OSS officer and later CIA director under Richard Nixon. Nixon. Bradley also worked in Paris with Richard Ober, a veteran CIA officer at the time Scorzini was underground in the city. Ober had served in the OSS during the war as a liaison with the anti-fascist undergrounds in occupied Europe. Given the intelligence background of both Bradley and Ober, this presence in Paris should be considered a part of Operation Compass Rose, especially since Ober transitioned directly from the OSS to the CIA. In later years, Ober was assigned to the Special Operations Branch of the CIA that conducted wiretaps, break-ins, and burglaries as directed by CIA chiefs. Historians have also identified Ober as the famous deep throat operative in the Watergate scandal, and after 1954, Ober was assigned as deputy to CIA officer James Angleton when the latter took over as head of the agency's counterintelligence office. And so, anyways... To just continue the interesting connections that take place in this story, Gannis goes on to speak about how Bradley's wife was the sister of Mary Pinchot Myers. Ooh, so some of you guys are probably already starting to go, very interesting. Yes, that's right. So anyways, let's just jump into it. Both Mary and her sister, Tony, would be close friends of the wife of James Angleton, Cicely de Autremont. And as many of you already know, but I will go ahead and elaborate, Mary Pinchot Meyer was married to Cord Meyer Jr., who was brought into the CIA fold by who else but Alan Dulles, where he would work under Frank Wisner and where else but the Office of Policy Coordination. And so, Mary would fit in well with the CIA crowd, and none other than JFK would end up being the next-door neighbor of the Myers. And the Myers would tragically lose a child, and Cord would always be busy with the CIA shenanigans, you know, and so this would obviously end up taking a toll on their marriage And so Mary would do what sometimes people do when they are unhappy in a marriage and she would begin to have an affair. But what they typically don't do in a marriage is have an affair with John F. Kennedy. So a letter written on White House stationery only a month before the assassination of JFK would ask Mary to meet him for a secret rendezvous. And so after JFK was whacked, Mary would begin to fear for her own life. And the following year, on October 12th, (laughs) I don't know, man, my brain's so trashed from all this stuff. Uh, That's Alistair Crowley's birthday. Not that that it really pertains to anything, unless it does. Um, (laughs) She would be found dead. Um, I I haven't seen that conspiracy yet. Mary Pinchot Meyer as Thelemic Human Sacrifice. But... Hey, you know, if somebody's got some other stuff to support that theory, I'll bring you on the show because sounds interesting. But anyways, um, you, you know, she'd be found dead on October 12th. And this was after she left her house for uh, a walk. And the case to this day remains cold. But I mean, some people have some ideas to say the least. Now, the high strangeness does by no means end there so because once again just who else rears his ugly skeletal face and his big dumbo ears besides james angleton 
And so Bradley would later state in his memoirs um, with the hard thought out title of A Good Life uh, that he had gotten a call the night Mary was murdered from a friend who said that she had a diary, that Mary had a diary, and the search would begin for Mary's diaries, you know, which would supposedly contain the details of her dalliance with the assassinated president. And Bradley would say when him and his wife got to her studio that they found Angleton beating them to the punch and he was breaking in. And after they reviewed the diary, they would confirm from the diary this affair between Mary and Kennedy had actually took place. And then Angleton would take the diary and supposedly, uh, you know, uh, let me take this. I, I This needs to be destroyed. No one can see this. Uh, yeah, right. But journalist Nina Burleigh in A Very Private Woman, The Life and Unsolved Murder of Presidential Mistress Mary Mayer, would say that after the breakup between Mary and Cord, that Angleton would have Mary's bedroom and phone bugged, and, you know, so she's being listened to. And there will be more to say about the murder of Mary and, you know, potentially how Scorzini relates to that. But anyways, we'll get to that. But if Forrester's connection that ends up, you know, factoring into the death of JFK um, didn't already weird you out, there is yet another one. And we've already talked in the last episode about a couple of distant, you know, uh, associations that Scorzini has with people who would be, you know, potentially involved in the assassination of JFK. But one of the men aboard the Peace and Liberty board, aboard the board, man, and I got into podcasting, guys. I apologize. But he was this Russian native journalist, Isaac Don Levine. And in 1951, Frank Wisner would be, uh, would bring Levine into the fold. And he would task him with the manipulation of Russian and Ukrainian emigres in Europe. A scene which Skorzeny himself would actually play a role in. But with the CIA... Uh, Levine set up the American Committee for the Liberation of the Peoples of Russia, which is quite the mouthful. And shortly, you know, but anyway, to the Kennedy connection. So shortly after the Kennedy killing, in the words of Gannis, almost immediately he would arrive in Dallas, you know, as you do, um, to gain exclusive access to Marina Oswald's story. Hmm, going back to manipulating Russian immigrants, I see. And some believed that he was actually the guy who's playing the role of the CIA manipulator of Marina Oswald. So, I mean, Scorzini just has so many strange connections, but the amount of strange connections, and we haven't even gotten into the JFK stuff, really, but the amount of strange connections that he has to that fold is just absolutely mind-numbing and can make one go a little bit crazy. But anyhow, we'll get to all that stuff later. But back to Scorzini and the French scene. So Wybo, Roger Wybo, would meet with Walter Bettle Smith about creating a counter-espionage organization, a task which had been assigned by NATO. So while... To my knowledge, not much is known about if this organization ever came into existence. Weibo would create a, a separate group, the Study of Industrial and Commercial Markets, or CMIC, S-E-M-I-C, which would function as Weibo's own private detective industry. You know, once again, going back to the outsourcing, and a group in which Scorzini would play a large major part in if not the leading role in this private detection detective agency and so um anyhow this is yet another one of the many groups connected to scorzini that was a creation of french intelligence and the cia and there would actually be a former employee of cmic who would say that the group had been behind a jewel heist in Keynes, and Weibo had been in charge of the investigation, actually, <laughs> into this theft. 
um, which would end up, you know, being set up to fail, according to some. And big surprise, Weibo did not find himself guilty of the crime that he was um, both accused of committing and tasked with investigating. It's funny how that kind of thing ends up working out. But we know Scorzini was involved with Simic because a later uh, a letter exists between Pierre Buteau and the former Nazi about getting their stories straight in relation to Weibo. So very interesting, you know. We have Scorzini involved with this private detective agency that was doing all this crazy stuff, potentially even a jewel heist. So yet another interesting connection amongst the plethora of connections of Otto Scorsini. So much more can be said about Scorsini and the French scene, but after a few more things, it's probably best in the interest of time to just go ahead and wrap up this portion of the Scorsini saga so we can get to the next portion because there's just so much to cover. So let's conclude this section with the 11th Shock Battalion, which was the most important unit when it came to Compass Rose because a lot of this French stuff that I'm talking about all falls underneath the banner of Compass Rose, this stay-behind network that was being set up in France to combat the Nazis. So Special Operations Soldiers is what the 11th Shock consisted of, and they were underneath the control of the French Intelligence Agency. We've already mentioned them in the previous episode, but the SDECE, and Scorzini would advise them not only in relation to Compass Rose, but he would later on in regards to the wars in Indochina and in Algeria. And this is a role that we'll see Scorzini has already played and will continue to play throughout the totality of his life is, you know, assisting all these different groups and instructing them and training them with his commando knowledge. So Gannis describes the SDCE as a dirty tricks department and he mentions how David Talbot in The Devil's Chessboard relates that the 11th Shock conducted targeted assassinations both inside and outside of France, which I guess it's been a while since I've actually read the Talbot book because I did not remember the 11th Shock being discussed. It has been a while since I've read it. It has to have been at the very least three years maybe maybe longer i don't know since the last time i read it but anyhow let's go ahead and dive into scorzini arriving in spain after being noticed strolling with a girl in the champs elise in paris so here we come to the spain era and after scorzini was seen you know parading around with this girl the sighting would be widely publicized in the french media and, you know, I mean, even at this point, even though Scorzini had been, you know, presumably let out by, you know, intelligence agency uh, people in order to become an asset of theirs and do all of this uh, weird, crazy stuff we've been talking about throughout this series, um, you know, he was still keeping it on the DL, to say the least, you know. I mean, he wasn't exactly everybody's favorite guy. Um, you know, because, you know, typically people who aren't Nazis don't like Nazis, you know, parading around in their country. And when the news hit the media, he would hightail it out of the country. And he seemed to do this just in the nick of time. One can only wonder if he had maybe been given a tip because only hours after his departure, his French home was raided and his unpublished memoirs would end up being published in the country. You know, which was just further raised the scandal around Scorzini in France. But Scorzini was, according to Gannis, um, he would be harbored once again by an underground network connected to Western intelligence. And he would enter Spain under the alias Rolf Steinbauer. And Scorzini would make Spain his headquarters until his death in 1975. But at the time of his arrival, the Cold War was in full bloom. The U.S. was focused on its conflict in Korea. You know, the communists were the boogeymen of the day, you know. And I don't know, a lot of weird stuff was going on in Spain during this time. You know, as I've mentioned, that was where the World Commerce Corporation had its headquarters. There's a lot of uh, weirdo stuff going on in Spain. But Scorzini, as soon as he arrived in Madrid, would begin to heavily work on business, and this would include his dealings with the World Commerce Corporation. 
and both Ricardo Siffer and Frank Ryan would be mentioned in the Scorsini papers, which author Ralph Gannis had bought at auction, and these two men were former OSS operatives who were running the World Commerce Corporation, and Ricardo and Frank Ryan would also be heavily involved in what is known as Project Safe Haven. So, Safe Haven was an allied plan to prevent a Fourth Reich, you know, at least officially, you know, you know, because supposedly they were fearing, you know, about the Nazis acquiring their hidden assets they had stored away. And so, you know, Safe Haven was all about finding these hidden assets, which I think that's kind of like the Wikipedia Snopes version of Operation Safe Haven. Um, not that I'm an expert in it, but I would tend to believe that it's probably something more aligned, a lot uh, more aligned with the stuff that we talked about in our series on the Golden Lily and the recovery of Yamashita's gold and Japanese imperialist treasures. And we also talked in that series about you know Nazi gold and you know being acquired to be used as black budget. So I'd be my guess that that is more what Operation safe haven is but anyways you know forgive me for questioning the official story um but anyhow so this group that would uh there would be this group sofendis or the sociedad financiera industrial um which was a german corporate entity that was operated by the reich's main security office but was doing stuff in spain and, you know, which is where Skrzyny was, and he would receive his orders um, from the Reich main security office, you know. But according to Gannis, Skrzyny was aware of all operational aspects of Sofendis and its agent network. So, essentially, Sofendis was a Nazi intelligence network that had penetrated much of Europe, and it is probable that a large reason for the creation of both the World Commerce Corporation and the British American Canadian Corporation by, you know, Bill Donovan and William Stevenson, who we've already discussed in the series, was to secure these hidden Nazi assets. And so Safe Haven was, you know, kind of would get in this mix of, you know, trying to recover all these Nazi assets. And it would begin in May of 1944, and many of the agents in both the Special Operations Executive on the British side and in the Office of Strategic Services on the American side would be brought to Spain. And these were people like George Merton, who had formerly been the head of the investigation for the OSS into Nazi penetrations of South America, but he would eventually be brought into the BACC fold. And the Spanish government would be wrapped in all of this Sofendis business stuff. And that is until the end of the war when they would relinquish control of Sofendis to the Allies. You know, so Sofendis was set up by the Nazis in Spain, but then control would be relinquished to the Allies. All about getting this hidden Nazi loot. And companies that had been under the control of Sofendis would be brought under the umbrella of the World Commerce Corporation and this guy by the name of Johannes Bernhardt would be, for the most part, the one to run Sofendis. And he was also most likely the main economic link between the Nazis and Spain. And he would be the one who actually helped to strike this deal with the Allies to relinquish, relinquish control of Sofendis to them after the war. And he would be brought on as an advisor, you know, so he would be... Uh, rewarded for helping out the cause, if you will. But Bernhardt would also partner up with his fellow Nazi Skorzeny upon the scar-faced commando's arrival in Spain. And Bernhardt, just as Skorzeny, was no ordinary Nazi. He was the man to give Franco a letter from Hitler concerning the right support of Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Um, Sofendis, through Bernhardt, would also invest in the Spanish uh, Spanish businesses furthering the Nazi store of assets and their wealth, and the entity's presence was not only felt in Spain, but Savinas was also involved in Morocco as well as South America, with a particular focus on, you know, drum roll, Argentina. 
So Sofindus also worked as an intelligence network that carried out sabotage, espionage, and what else but assassination. And, if, you know, once again, just fields with which Scorzini flourished. But the SS Lieutenant Colonel Walter Mosig would eventually work as an operative in Sofindus in Spain after working with the Gestapo, and he would heavily collaborate with the Franco government, and he would just so happen to end up in Camp King like Scorzini and be interrogated by Arnold Silver like Scorzini. And wouldn't you know it, he would just so happen to escape like Scorzini. Man, I don't know why the hell they're sending anybody to Camp King because it seems like they can't keep anybody there. But after his escape, he would arrive in Madrid and then move to Argentina where he helped the U.S. reorganize the Sofendis Network. Damn, it's almost like there's some sort of weird Western intelligence network who's orchestrating all of this. But maybe I'm crazy. But um, if you don't think so, bend over, place your head between your legs, and kiss your ass goodbye. Um, I've been saying that way too much. I watched the Paradise Lost uh, series on HBO leading up to and slightly after my conversation with William Ramsey with the West Memphis Three, which, hey, if you haven't checked it out, check it out. It's always fun getting to talk with William Ramsey. I also went on his show to talk about the Golden Lily operations. But anyways, uh, John Mark Byers, who is one of the father of the uh, West Memphis Three victims, and the West Memphis, uh, the Paradise Lost documentaries kind of insinuate that perhaps he's some sort of, uh, you know, that he was the one to do the murder of the three little boys. But anyways, he is such a character to say the least. And there's a scene where he says, bend over, place your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye. And he's got this thick Arkansas accent, a uh, very, you know, backwoods type speak. But anyhow, uh, a lot of what he had to say was cracking me up, which, you know, sounds bad because it's a documentary about the murder of like three eight-year-old boys um but anyhow i can't help it the guys uh got got some funny uh witticisms or whatever the proper phrase to call it is but anyhow someone back you know to scorzini who would be mentioned throughout the scorzini papers and he was a close business associate and friend of the nazi mercenary was a former oss and special operations executive man named Victor Oswald, who will again turn up whenever we finally get to this Kennedy portion of this. Ah, oh, man, I suck. I know, I know. But Victor would sell aviation parts, and he was an arms dealer, and Scarzini would be involved in this aspect of Oswald's business. And Oswald would arrive in Spain at some point, and he would eventually become the representative of the Chase National Bank in Spain, meaning that he would work for John J. McCloy, who we also have mentioned earlier in this episode, who worked closely with... John J. McCloy's a freak. He he got his start working with the Harrimans. I remember learning about him during the Gold Warriors uh, stuff. But he'd get his start working with the Harrimans and Paul Warburg. Uh, he'd work at the law firm that represented IG Farben, which made the Zyklon B used in the gas chambers. You guys know that. And uh, IG Farben also used slave labor from Auschwitz. Um, McCloy would push for the internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. He'd actually get support for this from Earl Warren, you know, Warren Commission guy. And uh, he would say in relation to this that the Constitution was just a scrap of paper to him. Um, you know, same constitution he swore an oath to, but he later joined the Rockefeller family law firm, which represented Standard Oil. McCloy would serve as the president of the World Bank. He would help the Nazi butcherer Klaus Barbie out of detention. He would help Nazi war criminal Richard Gellin get the position of the head of West German intelligence. Um, uh, he helped release Alfred Krupp which some of you guys who listen to Jimmy Fallon Gong series on the, you know, Krupp and all that, you know, will know about who they are, you know, some more Nazi dudes. But he did, however, seem to doubt the official story of the Kennedy assassination. So, I mean, I guess you can commend John J. McCloy for that. I, I don't know. But anyhow, 
enough of me rambling about John Jay McCloy, you know, I was just bringing him up, and how he relates to Victor Oswald, and keep that name in mind, he's popped up a couple times in this series, and he is once again going to, uh, you know, recur once we get to all of the Kennedy stuff, but anyhow, another guy who's came up before in this series is Hadjelmar Shocked, uh, who we discussed briefly in a previous episode. He had been the Reich Bank president and economic minister, and this was one of the people who Scorzini would speak with, whose advice would help Scorzini in the future by his own account. You know, Scorzini would talk about this. But both of these men would share not only a Nazi past, but a hatred of communism, as well as deep ties to Western intelligence in the post-war era. So Schacht would establish contacts with uh, Americans, and he would have actually become an asset of none other than Alan Dulles. And so by some accounts, it would be Dulles who worked covertly to ensure that Schacht would come out of the Nuremberg trials with you know a not guilty verdict. And Schacht would later be involved with Scorzini's business ventures in oil and steel, and we also discussed him in relation to Otto's gal pal Elza, and Elza claimed to be related to the Reich banker Hadjelmar Schacht, and I should have just said earlier that she, you know, claimed to be a countess, but neither countess, but neither of these claims, you know, are really true. Uh, I read in the last episode this quote from Kua in Dallas, uh, let me find it, uh, uh, so, Alberelli Jr. says in Kuhn Dallas, suggestion that she was related to Hitler's banker shocks stems primarily from the affectionate term Uncle Hajimar used both by Ilza and Otto, but there is a possibility she was directly related to Hajimar in some way. Countess could have been a borrowed title. But anyways, Scorzini had met with Schock during um, a trip to Nuremberg, as we discussed briefly. Um, when we discussed Scorzini being allowed to leave Camp King for some reason. But presumably, you know, he, he was allowed to leave because Western intelligence wanted him to touch base with some of his old Nazi contacts and turn them into assets as well. But anyhow, Gannis described Schacht and Scorzini's business relationship as follows. In 1952, Schacht entered into a complex and significant financial relationship with Scorzini and his business associates in Madrid, but exactly who organized this partnership is not known. Schacht became head of a banking house in Dusseldorf and was a major financial backer of Scorzini's many business ventures. Schacht began financial banking of Scorzini on cue of Scorzini's entry into business with Johannes Bernhardt, the former head of Sofindus, and Victor Oswald, the former American OSS British SOE operative. This confirmed Schacht was running finances for the business network's um, for the business networks that were serving as cover for Scorzini to carry out CIA covert operations. The Shaq Scorzini financial network would remain active until well into the 1960s. And, I mean, just a brief aside that may be of interest to some of the listeners, um, some of you listeners, is that Gustav Krupp, who ran Frederick Krupp AG, you know, we already briefly mentioned, you know, the the the, the, the Krupp gang, who belonged to the same Krupp family who, you know, was talked about in relation to John J. McCloy. He was initially opposed to the Nazis, but he would be persuaded by none other than Hajelmar Schock to do business with the Nazis, saying that a government ran by Hitler would lead to be uh, to more armament expenditure and that there was no sense in opposing the Nazis because Hitler intended to destroy trade unions and the left. And anyhow, um, you know, Scorzini would remain in Spain as, you know, that would be his main headquarters for the rest of his life. But, you know, in order to get on to some of the other interesting stuff that Scorzini did, we'll leave it at there for now. And we will pick back up and I'll, I'll do my best. No promises. I'll try to conclude the rest of Scorzini's life aside from the JFK stuff by next episode. And then we can spend a couple episodes on the JFK assassination. But I'm also going to try and set up some new interviews to have with some people. Um, if you have any suggestions of who I should interview, people who you'd love to have on the show, uh, just DM me, Thing Observer, no spaces all under case, at twitter.com. Um, my DMs are open. Anybody can message me. If you like this show, 
Please give a rating on whatever podcast app you're listening to or review. I greatly appreciate when you guys do that and it helps the show to get seen by more people. If you enjoyed this episode, if you've been enjoying the show, send your favorite episode to a friend or a family member who you think would appreciate it or actually send the episode you think that they would most appreciate it. I'd love for more and more people to get listening to this. And the more people who listen to it, the more time that I'll feel justified in putting into this show. So that way the episodes can get better and better and we can get bigger guests the more people who are listening. It'll just be good. So like, share. Anyhow, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I'll try to do better about being less long-winded and doing a better job of being more concise and wrapping this up about Scorzini. And, you know, we can get into some other fascinating topics because there is so much stuff I want to talk about. Um, Maybe doing like an AIDS episode. I thought that that could be some interesting stuff. Uh, If you have some suggestions about stuff I should talk about on the show, let me know. Thing Observer on Twitter. I, I will get back with you all. But anyways, I hope you all have a blessed day. I love you all, and I will talk to all of you all soon.